Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. The most powerful metabolic intervention that I know of, and it's better than free. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today, I'm joined by George Newman, who is an individual I met when I was lecturing at a low-carb conference in San Diego this past summer, and really intriguing individual George is. I was having dinner with Dr. Dale Bredesen, who wrote the book, The End of Alzheimer's, and actually, I wasn't having dinner. He and Dr. Bredesen and his wife, who's also a physician, was having dinner, and I was just fasting like George was. And we had a great uh, conversation. And at the end of the meal, George and a few other people came over, and I was like, ah, oh, I was annoyed that George was interrupting. I didn't know George, never met him before. He's interrupting it. But he, George started talking. He had this incredible, fascinating information. And this man has been a major catalyst in my own health transformation. It has been a, an incredible personal inspiration to me. And I just had to have him share his wisdom on the site. He has no formal health training, but I guessed his, his, his uh, occupation. He's an engineer and he really knows his stuff. So welcome and thank you for joining us, George. Uh, thank you, Dr. McCullough. It's good to be here. So let me expand a bit more on your background. Not only are you an, an engineer, an intriguing individual who's passionate about health, but you, and I'll let, I'll let you discuss the details in a moment, but you're also a patient of two physicians I've interviewed previously this year, Dr. Dale um, Bredesen and Dr. Stephen Gundry. And I don't think there's many people who are patients of both. And, and you're seeing Dr. Bredesen because after your... I'm, I, I know Dr. Bredesen, but I'm not a okay, patient. I, okay, and I, I'm and sorry I do follow his protocol. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that is correct. You were there at the low-carb meeting because Dr. Bredesen was presenting to a, a subgroup of individuals who have APOE4. And uh, well, let me, why don't you take it over from there and then we can discuss uh, the, the fascinating information you sh you've been sharing with me. Well, I've had a, you know, I have had a, I've had a long and interesting health journey. And uh, um, one of the things started out with was uh, 13 years ago, I ended up with atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, in my case, uh, it was brought on with uh, excessive or chronic fitness. Um, mm -hmm which is a smaller subset. Uh, a lot of people get it when they're older. Um, and what, 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 what fitness regimen were you involved with? At that point, I was, uh, you know, uh, participating in high altitude, long distance races. Um, so uh, I was, uh, you know, I was doing fairly intense training, you know, uh, races that would, for example, the Pikes Peak Ascent Race, which would start out at 6,300 feet and go to 14,100 feet over 13 miles. You know those kind of things, and in fact, it was after a training run on one of those uh, that I got my first uh, uh, AFib episode. Actually, but delayed by uh, two or three days uh, because it, uh, I happened to have a, um, a parasympathetic response, uh, a vagal trigger to AFib, which means that my system gets slow 
And so it's not uh, like some people go to the gym, they lift, and they will get AFib because they're, they're, they're exerting themselves. I, I uh, do these things and uh, uh, long distance running or something, uh, and I would, uh, my system would then get very slow for a couple of days, and it's, and it's in that slowness that would that'd be a trigger for my AFib. And the short story of that is I managed, uh, after a two-and-a-half-month episode, managed to uh, create a, a regimen for myself, which includes a lot of high-dose magnesium, um, uh, which has kept me relatively uh, in rhythm uh, for most of that time. And, and uh, so uh, I, I did detrain. I don't do uh, chronic um, long-distance long endurance exercise anymore. Um, and uh, I, I am still fit, but uh, I, I've taken that out of my uh, routine. I, I do take a lot of magnesium. That's uh, it was brought home the other day. I was traveling, and I had put my magnesium, which was in a powder form, uh, in a jar and uh, or in a, in a in a bottle, and I had it away from other supplements, and I didn't take it for two days, and I woke up at midnight in AFib, and I'm like, I instantly knew what my problem was, and okay. so I went and took some AFib. I mean, went and took some magnesium, and and uh, I have a med. Uh, flecainide, which will convert me, and I took that, and I'm converted. I'm back to, back to that. So that's that was the start, and I started to look at everything that I could to uh, figure out how could I be healthy. And one of the things that that uh, struck me was about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, out of the Mayo Clinic, there was a study done in um, in the county where they um, where they're located, and it was a long-term study of uh, proximal afibers and who actually had a longer life expectancy than the normals. Uh, but over time, they got metabolic illness like everybody else. Um, and so it was that, uh, and I decided that right then and there, uh, that's not gonna be me. Mm -hmm. So that, that started my, uh, kind of my, my kickoff on trying to figure out how to be healthy. Well, that, that's what I loved about you, or still do, is that, even though you're you're not a health professional, you refuse to accept the conventional medical wisdom, which was to take a medication for this or even have cardiac ablation, which is surgery to remove the aberrant pathways. And for those of you who don't know what atrial fib is, let's spend a moment on this. Uh, it's condition where you have an increased electrical activity or aberrant electrical activity in the atrium, which is a smaller chamber of the heart that, that uh, essentially, um, contracts erratically and isn't able to sync up with the ventricle so that you get this one-to-one -one ratio. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a problem. And from your experience, because you were in that community, you were networking with your long distance or endurance training, did you find many people that were involved in this uh, developing AFib? And is it, is it common in, in endurance athletes? It is, you know, I would say there's probably a genetic component. Um, mm -hmm. You know, certainly not every endurance athlete gets uh, gets AFib, but uh, it raises your risk. I, I looked at one study. Um, this was uh, in what they call Orienteers uh, over in uh, Northern Europe, and you know the the AFibers had or the, uh, the the endurance athletes had probably um, oh I don't know maybe a twenty times. Uh, greater risk than normals, uh, you know, young, young, younger people, people that have, that are chronically fit to get AFib typically are diagnosed um, in their late 40s, early 50s. 
and they've had a they've had a lifetime of of of, uh, of chronic fitness, long endurance, long distance endurance exercise. If you're tall, um, you know, basketball players, pro basketball players, are at uh, high risk for this. Um, but we are a small subset, relatively small subset of uh, people who get AFib. Most of them are, are older. Most of them have other morbidities, um, you know, and uh, or they may get it because they had a, a harder lung operation and the inflammation from that. So, so that's uh, uh, that's that's kind of the the AFib story. And I wouldn't want to give people that are listening uh, the idea that uh, my story is uh, easily repeatable. Um, I'm not saying that people shouldn't try to, for example, detrain if that's their issue and, and take high dose magnesium. I took it to bowel tolerance. Uh, but uh, yeah, depending well, upon... Let's, let's go into the details. How, how much magnesium were you taking? Because the typical, I think the RDA is 400 milligrams a day? Something like that. Yeah. No, I no, took this, up, is, this is elemental magnesium. So you have to convert that because just because it says uh, 500 milligrams of magnesium sulfate or whatever sub citrate, it doesn't mean it's 500 milligrams of ionized of elemental magnesium. Correct. And, uh, and then you also have to look at, like if you get a, a pills, sometimes it'll say magnesium 400 and then you realize the serving size is two pills. And so it's 200 milligrams yeah, yeah. per pill. Uh, but I actually at one point took up to five and a half grams of magnesium. Wow, 5,000 milligrams. A day, so and I I've managed to titrate that back down. Today I'm probably taking around, you know, one and a half grams or something like that, which for me is low, but uh, for the normal person they'd probably be on the john all day. Yeah, it's still 400% higher than the RDA, and right. that is the you're right. That is the primary side effect of magnesium. It's almost impossible to overdose because you, it has a laxative effect, and if you take too much, you'll have you'll have bowel, you'll have excess bowel movements, and you'll just eliminate it that way. Yeah, and I'm—I mean, so the from what I read, the the body total body store magnesium is about 30 grams, including the bones and everything, and uh, and so the fact that I was taking five grams a day, I was obviously and not having loose stools, I was obviously urinating out a lot of that, um, and uh, why I wasn't hanging on, I've never quite figured out. But it, but it, whatever it is, I, I I have done several times when when I first figured out my routine of high magnesium and detraining. I had a, a, a period of two years without any, without an AFib event, and I thought, oh, I've had reverse remodeling. I'm cured, and I don't need <laughs> these supplements. And so I, uh, I said, okay, I quit taking them. And within uh, 24, 48 hours, I was an AFib. I'm like, okay, I don't need to repeat that. And so I haven't intentionally repeated that since. Um, so, but anyways, that's, uh, uh, again, I, I don't want to give people the impression that this is an easy thing to do. Uh, it, it, it worked for me, and it's probably worth trying, but, uh, you know, that's, it, it, it is fairly rare that you can do this. Now, I don't know or recall if we had this discussion when we were in San Diego, but did I discuss the likelihood that uh, electromagnetic field exposures can increase the risk of AFib? I mean, it's pretty well documented. I don't know that you talked about it. I know that that's true, um, and I know that there are people uh, in, in my online world of AFibbers that uh, have reported being very sensitive to EMF uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and having EMF as a trigger. I'm, I suspect that you're, you're probably talking about it more at a, at a more fundamental level of, of uh, causing issues. But, uh, you know, I know that people have it as a direct trigger, you know, that they get an EMF and it, uh, around EMF and it causes yeah, issues. It, 
the uh, certainly the the cell phones would be one and Wi-Fi, but also the perhaps one of the most important ones is when you're sleeping. You have to really sleep in an EMF-free environment. So the simple act of turning off the electricity to your bedroom, assuming your bedroom isn't surrounded by other circuits, either above or below or to the back or the side of you, that uh, might be influencing it. But if it's an isolated room and you set up the electricity and you can get the electrical fields and magnetic fields down close to zero, uh, that should have a profound improvement, especially if you're sleeping in a high electric and magnetic field. Right. So have you, have you looked into that? Like, have, are you shutting off the electricity in your bedroom? I haven't looked into it, but that's, you know, my, I, that doesn't appear to me to be a trigger for me. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as I stick to my routine, which is the, you know, not overdo the chronic, you know, endurance exercise and, and take the magnesium, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm well, pretty you're much controlling the temp here, here, here's the, my, my viewpoint of it is that you're effectively controlling the system with a, with a very natural strategy, magnesium. But from, um, we know from Dr. Martin Paul's work that it's highly likely that the EMF toxicity is mitigated through the voltage-gated calcium channels. And with your high dose of magnesium, essentially calcium channel blocker, you're able to block the effects of EMF effectively but doesn't mean that it's still not causing some other damage but i have had for example i've been i've been you know i've been camping uh in the middle of the wilderness where there is effectively as little emf as you can get and well, uh, you'd be surprised unless you, you couldn't get a cell phone signal there i don't think so because okay, we were, then, we were then pretty we were pretty remote okay and then you, you still didn't notice that well, and I and I and I did end up and I and, and and that particular day, you know, I ended up in AFib, and it could have been again um, uh, the endurance activity of you know hiking up at the campsite with a pack on, sure, um, you know, which which could have which was probably the overdoing it, but but so so those in my case that tends to be the, mm -hmm. the trigger. Have, have you evaluated or researched or looked into what the mechanism might be with the activity and, and pushing it to high intensity training? Uh, is it like left uh, diastolic dysfunction, left ventricular diastolic dysfunction, or you know some other? I mean, I'm sure you've researched this because that's one of the things I love about you. You're, you're obsessive. You know, I don't know that I really know. I, I really can't say why uh, excessive endurance activity. I know that you know. Um, in general, people that are athletic uh, tend to have larger hearts, and mm -hmm. you know, and and uh, and, uh, and I know that that does predispose you to uh, uh, a risk of AFib. Um, okay. And you know, again, going back to the magnesium, I know that that exercise, uh, stress of any kind, but exercise will deplete magnesium. And if I had to throw something at it, you know, as as a guess, I'd probably say that. Um, I was uh, depleting myself of magnesium, and the first day when when I when I had my first episode, I um, uh, I actually was. It turns out I've had white coat hypertension for probably thirty five years, and mm -hmm. and so I and I figured that out. a friend of mine who's a gynecologist told me about it, and I figured it out. And so I take my own blood pressure, you know, not I mean not really frequently, but you know periodically. And so one day I I, I got up in the morning and I have an old manual, you know. Um, cuff and and I'm taking it and it's fine except my my heart sounded weird and I'm like huh mm. 
I wonder what that is. And so I, I threw this is you know I threw on an old exercise monitor and heart rate monitor and um, I'm looking at it and my heart rate's kind of bouncing around and I and I walked downstairs and I walked upstairs and and all of a sudden my heart rate's 145 walking up the stairs and I'm like something's wrong. I mean I didn't know I had no idea what AFib was. I didn't know anything and um, and you know and I tried to figure it out and so I ultimately drove myself to the ER um, and right then because they didn't get a print you know all I had to saw was on a screen but one of the things that happened is they took a, a blood sample and my potassium was pretty low my serum mm -hmm. potassium was pretty low and for a time I thought that was probably something that I really need to worry about and what I subsequently learned is that by subs uh, supplementing with magnesium um, the potassium fell into line and I didn't really need to worry about it and it would and, it, and it's it, it normally hangs out in the in the low four range for for serum serum potassium, and uh, but it clearly was low on that first day, and um, so I was get I would guess that uh, if there was a trigger uh, with the whole with the whole episode, it was it was low magnesium um, caused by the endurance activities, uh, and probably that upset the potassium balance. Okay, good. So the. Uh... Like we can go, there's two different ways here. We can go into the what the most profound metabolic intervention is or finish up on the magnesium. Let's finish up on the magnesium. So um, the two points I wanted to review with you, and it was one is that you can relatively inexpensively and almost any conventional lab does this. You don't have to send to an exotic lab, uh, obscure and, you know, not covered by insurance is the uh, <clears throat> magnesium or erythrocyte red blood cell uh magnesium levels. So uh, you've had these done and interestingly, can you share your experience with the high doses? I mean, extraordinary high doses, 10 times the RDA uh, um, with magnesium. So my uh, my RBC magnesium tends to be, and I, and I didn't sample, start sampling this until in the last couple of years, but uh, so I took a lot of magnesium for a long time. Um, and I believe it's, it's uh, Dr. Carolyn Dean, who does a lot of work with magnesium, and 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 she, looking at the uh, RBC magnesium levels, she she suggests uh, at the high end of normal uh, six to six and a half as a good range. And I tend to test uh, the first time I ever tested uh, before I had backed off a little bit was I think seven point eight, and a more recent test was I believe around seven and a half, seven point four, something like that. All right, so good level. So that that. I was I just took this test recently for the first time earlier this year and was taking over a gram two and a half you know two and a half times the RDA and my I had mine was below four it was like three point five it was below wow. normal it was below average so what the heck's going on didn't make any sense so you know I'm not sure that anyone knows all the details maybe there is and someone out there that I can discuss this with but there's some issue going on here with magnesium because you can be taking large doses. It may be an absorption, utilization, incorporation into the cell, cell membranes. I don't know, but there's something. There's another variable that we're not considering here. It's not just the pure dose. Well, I know that there are people, I mean, I, in my AFib world, and, and there are some people that, that are very sensitive to magnesium levels. And, you know, one of my friends took, uh, you know, was taking um, uh, intramuscular magnesium and also doing, uh, you know, IV magnesium for quite a while to keep his levels up. So uh, I know there are people that uh, that do this. Um, 
there was a man when I was first looking at this stuff, and I, you know, people worried about, oh, you're you're taking too much and whatever, and and uh, he was a retired pathologist by the name of I think it was Herbert Mansman, and um, he was a large man, a type two diabetic, and he spent the latter part of his life as a retired pathologist uh, studying magnesium. There there are papers written by him, and he was uh, and all, and and I think at one point he took. 20 grams a day for a year wow. and he was able to um, uh, actually mitigate the uh, diabetic neuropathy symptoms in his legs by doing that. Interesting. Um, so uh, it, was his, it was his work that I realized, well, I'm probably not going to have a problem uh, ODing on this stuff. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> in his... In his uh studies or papers that he published, did he in indicate how he circumvented the laxative effect or did he give himself administered IV? Uh, I think he, uh, I think he actually sat on the jaw a fair amount. Okay. <laughs> Which is a side effect. <laughs> so, uh, now, well, let's just talk a bit about magnesium carbonate and then we can go in, then swerve into the really exciting topic that I want to discuss. So, um, you had, you had, discussed the use of magnesium carbonate and gave me some references, actually a long paper that you wrote that was probably 20 pages full with hundreds of links uh, that discussed the value and benefit of magnesium carbonate. And I'll, I'll let you just describe that because it's a relatively recent, um, I wouldn't call it discovery, but observation from a, not even a physician or health professional, but a rancher in Australia that did it in the late or early 90s. So why don't you tell, tell that story and then I had some questions for you on magnesium. Bi, okay, actually, first, magnesium so, bicarbonate, it's not magnesium right, carbonate. bicarbonate. And, and, yeah. and so the, for one thing, uh, I can't claim that uh, authorship of that paper. The guy that wrote it is also named George. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, and he's sorry, also an engineer. And I think he's an engineering prof up in Illinois. But uh, um, yeah, magnesium bicarbonate, there was a vet, I believe, in, in Australia and, and ranchers, and they observed that I think it was sheep that were drinking from a certain spring um, had better health outcomes. And they mm -hmm. tested the water and found out that it, it was uh, relatively high in, in magnesium uh, bicarbonate. And uh, so uh, actually it was some AFibber acquaintances of mine that created uh, a, uh, a magnesium water drink um, by, they, they took chilled carbonated water and added milk of magnesia to it, um, and that would create uh, a reaction which would create magnesium bicarbonate. Um, and uh, and I believe you're now doing that. Is that correct? Well, I was, I was going to expand on because I've, I've I started it. I finally went down and I got a soda stream to create the carbonated water rather than buying environmentally polluting you know, all these all these buying bottled soda water. And polluting right. the environment, I thought I would create it, and so I got the and I got a half a dozen bottles of, of additive-free magnesium hydroxide, commonly known as milk of magnesia, but most of it, 95% of it being sold as garbage because it has additives. So it d doesn't taste very good, and the reason you have to do this exotic preparation is because it's not available as a salt; it doesn't precipitate out. You can you can't have magnesium bicarbonate in a powder. You just can't. You can't you can't put in a pill. You can't put in a capsule. You can't swallow. It. You have to create this reaction. You can also use magnesium acetate to do it, uh, and you know. So I and it doesn't taste really good. It's got a pretty 
bland, bit, not bitter, but it's not a good taste. Definitely not a good taste. Um, so I, I discussed this with a, a good chemist friend of mine, Tyler LeBaron from the Molecular Hydrogen Foundation, who's a pretty sharp guy, one, one of the top leading researchers in the, or uh, promoters in the world of molecular hydrogen as a therapeutic entity. And we're going to be interviewing him in a few months. Um, but he, as a chemist, he, he, he let me know that it wasn't really anything special about magnesium bicarbonate. Actually, as long as you're getting the ionic magnesium and the carbonate, you're going to get the benefits. So I opted not to use it, and I'm taking potassium bicarbonate on a regular, a nightly level. So I'm getting my carbonate ions, and I'm act right. actually providing some beneficial alkalizations. I think maybe one of the, re the ob reasons for the observations that the vet had in Australia, and then I'm just taking high-dose magnesium. So I opted out of the bad-tasting magnesium bicarbonate solution. Well, I've actually opted. So, so another way you can get it is magnesium, as you alluded to, magnesium acetate, and uh, you can you can do that again with milk of magnesia. And uh, I use uh, organic apple cider vinegar mm -hmm. in a uh, ratio of two to seven, two of the magnesium uh, milk of magnesia, and, and and to seven parts of uh, of the uh, uh, vinegar, and that creates magnesium acetate which, from what I understand, converts to magnesium bicarbonate in the body. And, uh, and that's a quick reaction. The, the actually magnesium uh, bicarbonate reaction with, with uh, uh, carbonated water does take a while. And, yeah, it uh, takes a few hours, right? So I don't know if you had any thoughts on it, but I'm, I, I'm thinking it's going to work. So I like but I, and it's certainly a lot simpler, easier, and I just take high-dose magnesium. But I'm going to monitor. It's probably going to take me a year to figure it out for myself personally, but because I'm going to do monthly levels to figure it out. Well, I, so. it, you know, I mean, for me, there, there's lots of different magnesiums, and people mm -hmm. talk about what's best, what's this or that, you know. Mm -hmm. And for, for my primary purpose, which is the AFib, mm -hmm. uh, in my case, any magnesium works. I mean, right. I, can, so, I can take magnesium oxide, I can take citrate, I can take, you know, whatever, you, you know, the uh, glycinate, you name it. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Uh, uh, I just need to take it and take it regularly and take it in sufficient quantities, and it works. Okay. All right. Now that we beat that one to death, I have a nice segue into the next article, or not an article, but topic, okay. which is what I'm really passionate about now, and and am very grateful to you personally for inspiring me about fasting, which is the mat most profoundly effective metabolic intervention I am per personally aware of for a whole variety of reasons, which we'll discuss. Now, I've knew some of this because I've interviewed Jason Fung and I read his book, but what I, I it was mostly an intellectual academic appreciation and real and belief that fasting was useful for people who were overweight or had some metabolic condition. If you were had normal insulin levels, my insulin levels, the last time I measured them were 0.2, I mean, which is profoundly low. Sure. Uh, so fasting insulin. So I didn't need it to control my insulin levels or anything. I thought there was no benefit for me, and it would certainly seem painful. And but you inspired me, and we had we had we got into this co lively conversation about Dr. Walter Longo's work, and you had actually went into his patent and sort of hacked what he was doing, and came up with a solution. So. Uh, because of my discussion with you, I've started fasting and I'm fasting for four, four or five days. My first one was a four day fast and earlier this week, so I finished my second five day fast and 
It's beautiful. It's lovely. I mean, I, I absolutely embrace it. I don't fear it. I, I, you know, I look forward to it. Actually, there's no pain. It's just you can get more done. It's just easier. It's less expensive because you don't have to buy food, prepare it, eat it, clean up. I mean, it's just a joy, and your the mental clarity is just profound. And what I'm most excited about is the fact that there's two good things, and I'll and I'll hand the platform over to you is that it, it radically improves your body's ability to digest damaged cells, something we call a process we call autophagy or senescent cells that are just corrupted and damaged and need to be taken out. It's like taking the garbage out. And many times your body's ability to do this is impaired, especially if you're having uh, some, as most people do, insulin resistance, that, that process is, is, is shut down or throttled down significantly. So, um, and then it also increases stem cells. So that's the two primary reasons I'm doing it because I certainly don't need it to lose weight or improve my insulin resistance, but I love it. I absolutely love it. So why don't you take it from there, take your perspective, and we'll have a dialogue on it. Okay, well, let me, let me back up just a minute. I, I mentioned in the AFib seg uh, segment that I, that, I, that I had seen a study where the, the, these AFibers, the paroxysmal AFibers, actually had a better outcome uh, but that they got metabolic illness over time, just like mm -hmm. the rest of the population. And so I said, that's not going to be me. And so I started. Well, well that's uh, not there. What do you mean by metabolic illness? You're talking about cancer, heart disease, diabetes? I'm talking about, yeah, uh, where your insulin glucose system is bad, and then it can lead to heart disease, it can lead to cancer, it can lead to okay. diabetes, all that kind of stuff. Okay. And, uh, and, and so I ended up uh, buying my first glucometer probably, I don't know, uh, maybe uh, 11, 12 years ago. And so I went down to the local drugstore, bought the cheap drugstore kind, and I was getting weird kind of you results. Not a, you were not a diabetic. I was not a diabetic. And I just bought the off the shore, and it had cheap strips, and I bought it. And I was getting results that I, I couldn't figure out. And so I found a white paper on this particular monitor, and I, I realized that the, the error bars around what I was reading uh, were larger than what I was trying to, than the data I was trying to gather uh, and the results <laughs> I was looking for. And, and I know in your book, you, you, uh, you mentioned a, uh, uh, the, the Bayer contour monitor mm -hmm. and I, and I got one of those and that worked pretty well. I've since upgraded to a, a contour next. My, my diabetic friends tell me it, it's, uh, you know, more precise and, and does better and but anyways I started testing with that and, and, the, and, and these are expensive meter folks they cost seven dollars <laughs> yeah the strips are the issue the strips the yeah. strips are where, what, what will uh, you know cost you a little bit of money I mean ultimately I mean you, you can generally get them for a quarter a strip if right. you buy them off eBay or something right. um, but uh, and and so and I was eating uh, at the time uh, you know uh, the, the the low fat vegan diet and and I and a pretty high carb diet and I and I and I did my I did a what's called an oral glucose tolerance test on myself, um, and so I uh, which is where you you fast and you measure your glucose your serum glucose levels, and then you take um, seventy five or hundred grams of glucose, and then you measure your your glucose periodically for the next you know half hour hour, and so on and. And according to the stats, I passed, but I had a pretty good spike on it, um, and I don't recall exactly at the time. But according to the the data I could find, it said, "Oh, you're you know you're you're okay." But I had this sneaking suspicion, I wasn't, mm -hmm. and uh, and so I, I kind of kept pursuing it. And and much more recently, I don't know, are, are you familiar with the work of Dr. Joseph Kraft? 
I don't believe so. No. Okay. Uh, Joe Kraft passed in um, February of this year at 96. Um, he was a pathologist in Chicago. And what he started doing in the 70s in his lab was doing these oral glucose tolerance tests, but testing insulin at the same time. Mm. And he wrote a paper in, I believe it was 75 or 76, and he had, he had done about 3,000 or 3,500 of these at, the, at that time. And he had, was able to um, uh, come up with like five or six patterns of, of insulin response um, to this. And you know everybody just looks at glucose, but he was looking at insulin. And one of those patterns was normal. And one of them, which was very low, would be for like a type 1 or somebody that wasn't producing a lot of insulin. Could also be for somebody on a low-carb diet that hasn't, you know, that they've been on a long-term low-carb diet. They will also have that pattern. And then there were a lot of these others with, with much higher responses that didn't come back, come back down. And, uh, and, they, uh, uh, and one of the, the startling things that he came up with was that 80% of people with a normal glucose response had an abnormal insulin response, mm. and I in the eighty percent, I'm 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 you know coming out of my memory, and it, it may be off a little bit, but it was in that order of magnitude, and and so he used to, he called the, the people that that uh, had an abnormal glucose response, but had a had a normal or abnormal no. insulin response, but a normal glucose response as uh, as diabetes in situ, mm -hmm. in other words, diabetes waiting to happen, and he felt like. Uh, that that this could predict type two diabetes in the future, you know, by even twenty five years. Mm, interesting. Um, you know, I, I I bet that's what Tim Monokes had too. He's a long famous long distance physician runner in South Africa. Wrote a big oh, book. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and so those uh, I believe today you can get these tests, but they're they're not common. Uh, Meridian Valley runs will, will run them for you. Well, you um, you can just order for if an oral glucose collar test and just have them run serum insulin level. It's nothing fancy about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do all that. Yeah, you can do all that. And I've never done it because I was already low carb before I figured yeah, this yeah. out. Sure. But anyways, I looked at when I looked at the, the oral glucose tolerance test, which I did with my own glucometer and everything like that. I said that something's not right. So ultimately, in two thousand nine, I said I quit the whole uh, low low fat thing and went with a with an Atkins approach to converting myself to a low carb diet. And I and I didn't know I hadn't I hadn't read, um, you know, Dr. Finney's books and all that stuff on on best practices and, mm -hmm. and and keeping my sodium levels up and and all that kind of stuff and and so I just suffered through a couple of weeks of uh, of uh, what uh, uh, you know, Dr. Dr. Atkins called induction uh, with 20 grams of carbs a day and and uh, um, you know that was and I I specifically remember rock climbing. And my bicep wouldn't contract because I'd run it out of I'd run it out of glucose glycogen, mm -hmm. and uh, so I, and I, I did, had all. You didn't yet stuff. have the ability to convert fat for fuel. That's correct. Yeah, so you were you were running without fuel, which doesn't work. <laughs> Got to have something to burn. Right. No, no, that that that's that's true, and 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 but that was all I knew how to do to to convert it. I knew that if you if you if you suffered through that, it would work. I did, and I and I now know there there are. Do that. The other thing that can happen is an, an electrolyte. Wait a minute. Okay, go ahead. Like disturbance that can happen, and I did get an AFib episode 
one one of those because my electrolytes are out of balance. And so that's just, so for people that are sub, subject to that, that is a risk factor. Pay attention to your electrolytes. Yeah. So let's just summarize and from both of our experience, provide everyone with a strategy who hasn't yet engaged in red fat for fuel or tried this themselves, or maybe their friends or family, is that you've got, I, th I this, after having read the book and done it now for two, three years, uh, my conclusion is there's two simple things. The most power, obviously eat the right foods for sure. So the next most powerful thing is to have, make sure that you're having enough salt. I mean, you have to have definitely at least several grams, probably six to eight grams of sodium a day or salt. And when you're fasting, this is hard to do because you don't want to put it in water. And what I just do is pour it on my Himalayan or Redmond salt on my palm of my hand. And I just lick it. I'll do that many times a day. And it's so it's like, it almost tastes like popcorn or something when you're, when you're fasting and it tastes good. Uh, but then this way you won't get, you won't get the, that the, the keto flu, which is simply a sodium deficiency. But to prevent the transition, the transition that uh, Atkins referred to and many, most people experience, the simple strategy, and I'd like your feedback on this, is just to go long intermittent fast. You know, where you're, every day you're, you're gradually restricting your eating window to four hours or even like you do to two hours. And if you do that for a month or so, you're, you're going to be burning fat. So why don't you, I, those are the two most profoundly effective ways to make the transition into burning fat for fuel easy and, and complication free. Yeah. And I've had a couple of friends that have lowered their carbs mm -hmm. and that's appeared to work for them also. Um, yeah. But I agree that sodium is a huge deal and it doesn't seem to be as big of a deal, you know, having been adapted for a long time, it doesn't seem to be the big deal. I do, I do take a fair amount of sodium, but it doesn't appear to be the same issue as when you're converting. Yeah, and maybe individual. Uh, I know mm -hmm. that if I go for a while without salt, and you know, especially the, the, the diet plan I'm on, I will wake up at night with miserable leg cramps, which just really annoys the heck out of me because I know how important sleep is, and it's and it's really is a challenge to go back to sleep after you know you get a leg cramp that you're just bouncing around with this crippling pain. So, but if my sodium levels up, I don't seem to get them. Yeah, for for me, leg cramps have been associated with magnesium, not sodium. So, okay. uh, well, it might be the, my case too, you know, so let's talk about the other thing now, which is we, we you know, the, the, we talked about the way that you can transition to transition into burning fat for fuel or transition into additionally transition into multiple day water fast, which is what I want to discuss next. So, okay. From, and so, so let's, let's talk about that. I mean, one, one of the things before somebody just jumps into this is I, I have been keto adapted or fat adapted, however you want to say it, since 2009, and and I don't know a year or something after that, I started eating twice a day. So I was I was eating, uh, you know, with basically 12-hour intervals with a with a small, uh, you know, maybe eggs and some fat breakfast or something like that, and. And I've been doing this. So when you talk about transitioning and, and you talk about how easy it is to do the multi-day fast, and it is for me too, but I have a long history mm -hmm. of, of doing, you know, of having my body be well adapted. And, and, and I know in your book, you talk about how like testing your, your ketones with urine strips isn't, you know, is not a good deal. And, 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 and my comment on that is uh, I look at ketosis almost as a binary uh, thing and uh, because I, when I first started doing ketosis, it was really 
you know, your insulin levels have to be reasonably low for you to make ketones. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to test insulin at home. And so an easy way is just to say, am I making some ketones? And if you're making any ketones. It's not, it's not hard. It's not, it's not possible unless you're a commercial lab scientist. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. And, and so, uh, I, you know, I looked at, well, if I'm making any ketones, I'm obviously, I'm obviously have low insulin. So that was, that was an easy test. And, and the urine strips, really the thing on the urine strips is you're testing acetoacetate, which is an excess. It's one of the ketone bodies. And if it shows up in your urine, it's excess. And so if you test a zero, if you pee on a strip and it's zero, and it's zero you don't turn it a color, you may or may not be in ketosis because you may not have any excess. It doesn't mean you're not making any. It just means you don't have any excess. If you do turn it a color, then you are making excess acetoacetate. And so you are in ketosis. And, and there is a reasonable, in my experience, there is a reasonable correlation. Uh, for example, if I do, you know, a five-day fast and my serum beta-hydroxybutyrate, which, you know, blood test comes up in the, you know, five, six, seven range of uh, millimoles per liter, um, I will test out at 80 milligrams per deciliter on the urine strip, you know. So there is a, there is a correlation. I just did it right before we started this, this, uh, this uh, uh, talk, and uh, I'm at 40. This happens to be the third day of a fast, of a seven-day fast. Um, and so my blood sugar was 71, and my, and my urine was, uh, um, you know, 40. So, it, so I'm, I'm in fairly strong ketosis right now. Uh, but yeah. but my, my point, what I wanted to back up make my point is, before somebody just dives into a, a long fast, first I would suggest, A, read your book, Fat for Fuel. Read, read Jason Fung's book. If you're on medications, be careful. Really think about what you're doing, especially medications that, that affect your blood sugar. I mean, you know, you can, you, this is powerful stuff. You can get into trouble. Don't just, you know, I do a lot of crazy stuff, but, you know, don't just like say, oh, I, I heard this guy on the internet. I can go do that. And, uh, you know, uh, arm yourself with knowledge. Don't just, you know, and like I say, I've been doing, I am well adapted. I, I don't remember the last time the color on a, on a ketone strip. I mean, even when I eat a fairly high carb meal, I, I did a I did a, a test in um, in March. Uh, a guy had me do two weeks of what you suggest in your book, which is uh, you know with a gram scale, measuring all your food, putting it in a chronometer, all that stuff. And my carbs ranged from uh, a low of of 88 grams a day to mm -hmm. a high of 180. With a with a mean of of 122, and of that, uh, which fiber would, fiber would average typically not be classified as a low carb diet. That's correct, and a lot of that were were uh, you know resistive starch starchy things. You know, yucca. So, so uh, yeah, what what was your net carbs on that? Well, my you know my fiber averaged between four and 66 grams a day. So half, so, basically half. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and and so, but what I'm saying is, even in that time, and I and the times I tested beta hydroxybutyrate or the serum uh, ketones, I was still at a minimum 0 0.5, 0.7, 0 0.2.0, which is considered nutritional ketosis. And, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And so, what I'm saying is, I've been doing this for so long that my body makes ketones, even if I'm not down. I mean, a lot of the guys that I've, that I've met on, on uh, you know, hanging out at, uh, on, on the internet that, that do keto ketotic diets, I mean, they're down at 20 grams a day or something like that. And they think that's where they yeah. need to be. I'm nowhere near that. 
and yet I'm still making a lot of ketones. My point of this is, so now I transition into fasting. It's a natural transition for my body. And I'm convinced that this is how our, you know, way long ago paleo ancestors worked, is that it was just a natural transition. It wasn't like, oh, if I'm out of ketosis for a day, you know, I have to go through a two-week readaptation re 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 or something like that. It's just like, oh, your body this way, and oh, oh, you need to, it's like changing the fuel tank on your vehicle or something, you know, okay, I got to switch fuel tanks. Um, and the body just naturally does it. But it's, but it's because of a long adaptation, not like, oh, I just did this and it happened. Well, I, I can appreciate that. And uh, I'm sure that helped. But uh, the caution here is I think if you're healthy, that you don't need to be on this for you know, more than five years or seven years before you transition to fasting. I think you can probably achieve it in a few months. But your, your points are well taken. I applaud you for mentioning the concern about diabetic medication. And I'm actually interviewing Dr. Fung again in a few weeks for his new book, The Diabetic Code, which basically explains how fasting is the cure, the cure for type 2 diabetes. So if you can go on it, my belief approach now is if you can go on intermittent fasting, low carb types of strategies that I discuss in the book, and you do that to get off your diabetic medication before you even think about fasting. So you're not taking any medication. Ideally, you do not want to take any medication when you're fasting. Some people don't have a choice because of their clinical condition, but most people, you know, this, this approach, burning fat for fuel will get you off of the vast people off of the most of their medications. And then you don't have a problem because it's only really a problem for very few conditions. And one of them is if you're taking medication, as you mentioned. But can you comment on the autophagy and the, um, the stem cell production? That's an interesting point. Uh, you know, when you looked at Walter Longo's work, uh, one of the things, and, and I don't know that he says this, but I look at what he's done and I would say their aha moment was when they, were, uh, they had uh, cancer model rodents mice, I believe, and they would, um, they were fasting them before a chemo, during chemo, after chemo, and then refeeding them till they came back to their before fast weight, and then cycling this. And after six or seven cycles, they noticed that these mice, and, and chemo will normally knock your white blood cell count way down. They noticed that these mice uh, had the white blood cell counts of young mice, um, and not cancer model mice with you know with, with with a lot of chemo, and I think that's that started and that was intriguing to me. And uh, but one of the things I and and a question I have is how long the fasts need to be to really get this because because they figured out that the stem cells in these mice were were creating you know, new, uh, new white blood cells, you know, and that, that was what they were, that's what they were doing. And I, when I first started this, I thought, well, maybe I will try that and see what happens. But I listened to an interview uh, that Rhonda Patrick had with uh, Guido Cromer, who's a, uh, he's a, he's a colleague of Walter Longo's and, and he, and, and, and he's in Paris. And he mentioned that uh, a mouse, when you fast it for a day, it loses 10% of its body weight. Mm -hmm. When you fast it for Days it loses twenty percent of its body weight, and if you and if you fast it much longer, it'll die. And a human. So my, my point is that the the signal that if I fast for five days is nowhere comparable mm -hmm. to fasting a mouse for two days. Right. Um, 
in, in terms of what, what we're doing to the physiology. And so autophagy, referencing, uh, a question I have is, you know, how long do you really need to fast to bring that out? And I, and I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. So I know when we met, you were doing five-day fasts, and now it sounds like you've increased it to seven. And, and you um, were doing them like every two weeks, right? And I still am. What happened is my wife doesn't do the five-day fast with me. She, she fasts 16 hours a day, uh, mm -hmm. and once a year she does a seven-day fast. And so she decided to do a seven-day fast, and so we, that's why we're doing a seven-day. I'm just doing the seven-day with her. I, I'm okay. sticking with the, the five days, the five. And, I, and I have been doing them basically every, every you know, five days out of every 14, um, okay. and I'm still doing that. Yeah, I have not decided to go that aggressive. I do it once a month, uh, which I th still think is pretty good. But, the, but let me, let's just talk about this, because when you talk to someone about water fasting, virtually anyone who hasn't done this, the, the most common and the absolutely profoundly predominant response is going to be one word. It's one syllable. It's fear. There's enormous fear around this. They think their body's going to starvation mode, that there's going to have all this hunger. But if you follow the principle, you, first of all, your body's not going to starvation mode. It's going into health generating mode. I mean, for sure, for, just for the reasons we discussed and a lot more that we don't have time to discuss. But uh, there's just not going to be any hunger if you, if you, you apply the strategies we recommend. And... Uh, you know, it's just a profoundly useful strategy. And I, I, I think it, 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 I'm convinced and I'm just so frustrated with myself for not figuring this out and understanding this earlier, that uh, this is such a profoundly effective tool and not just for those who are overweight or diabetic. Well, let me, let me address the, the hunger issue and everything. And, and uh, with, with a story, I have a friend who uh, is profoundly overweight. Um, He's, uh, and, and in a number of years ago, I'd sent him a copy of, of uh, Dr. One of, the, one of the Dr. Atkins books that Dr. Atkins had actually written, you know, one of the last ones he'd actually written. And my friend started an Atkins diet and he'd lost, he, he started out at 385 pounds and, he, and, he'd, and he'd lost about 40 pounds. And then he has a, a pretty tough family situation with drug addicted kids and grandkids and so forth and so on. And this target, you know, and, and, and so he, he regained the weight, and, and, in, and in April of this year, he called me and he said, you know, I'm as heavy as I've ever been. I, I really need to do something here. And I said, are you open to fasting? And he said, yes. And so I sent him a copy of Jason's book. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so he'd already know, knew about, you know, Atkins induction and going low carb and all that. And so uh, before he got the book, he started a low carb di a diet uh, about three days before. And uh, uh, he was eating once a day, a low, low carb, and then he gets the book and he says, I'm gonna, do a, uh, I'm gonna do a fast, I don't know how long it's gonna last, you know? And I said, okay. And uh, so then he texts me that night and he said, well, now what do I do? He said, you know, I, I, uh, I replaced the transmission in the vehicle and normally I'd go into town and get an ice cream cone. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> and I said, well, just, you know, be happy you got the job done. And, uh, so we laughed about that, and, and then, uh, so then I get, a, I get an email, uh, you know, a number of days, a week or so later, and he had just completed a seven-day fast. Um, and he told me it was one of the most liberating experiences of his life, and he considers himself a food addict, mm -hmm. um, flat out. And, uh, and he said that, that it was, uh, it really, 
opened his eyes and and he really we talked a little bit about uh you know some of the hunger strikers like gandhi and 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 how that if if people knew that it really wasn't that big of a deal uh they wouldn't have gotten all the attention they got and as as uh dr fung talks about in his book you know hunger is not on a linear upswing you know it does come in waves but the longer you fast, generally the, the easier it gets. Uh, and if, and if you are, as you point out, keto adapted, um, then the fasting isn't a, um, you know, you really don't have the hunger issue uh, to, to a great degree at all. Yeah, and I want to provide a caution for those out there, and perhaps you can chime in after I mention this. But uh, for some reason I didn't understand it, I kind of theoretically knew about it, but ignored it. And that is, uh, we have talked earlier about the high dose of magnesium and the value that has and, you know, the massive doses you've taken and, and still are taking. And the consequence, though, and I wonder what you do when you fast, because if you take a large dose of magnesium and you don't have food in your gut, you're going to get disaster pants, a massive, at least I did, massive outpour, almost uncontrollable diarrhea. So I'm to the point now that I virtually take no magnesium after the first day of the fast, after, after my stool is gone, which usually takes about two, two, two days, because I just do not want to have a gurgling stomach and wake up in the night and you know just have loose stools. So what, what is your point on, what is, what is your observations on magnesium? Because you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. Well, I would say that your experience uh, mirrors my wife's. Mm -hmm. um, when she first, she did her first seven day fast, she was having some issues and I said, well, you know, it's probably an electrolyte issue, let's get some more so let's go some more magnesium and so uh, and the magnesium did upset her stomach and she she did have what you described for me uh at this point my you know uh, i don't skip the magnesium and it doesn't cause me any issues interesting that that is fascinating wow that actually gives me hope so that with time there's a there's a possibility that i there's 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 some as yet not, certainly not commonly appreciated or appreciated at all mechanism going on with magnesium absorption and utilization that you know we're going to figure out in the future but there it sounds like your body's adapted to it which is just magnificent so congratulations well or i just need a lot of magnesium i mean it's you know uh, yeah now uh, but still there's a phys normally it's an osmotic uh, not diuretic. It's, it's it's an osmotic laxative, I think, that just draws water yes. into the colon and causes you to excrete it. So I don't know. Somehow your body is just absorbing it very efficiently and utilizing it before it gets. You know, it's just, mine's sitting in the colon, waiting to suck in water and expel it, which is not good. Yeah, I mean, mine mine gets absorbed from the colon, but it obviously has to get urinated out because you know otherwise I'd have. You yeah, know, yeah a lot toxic of excess magnesium. Right. I'd have magnesium toxicity. So, and I need to keep a fair amount going in there to keep from having a problem. And and so I I um, I know there are some some conditions that you know you don't hold on to magnesium. And you know yeah. I was forty nine when I first got AFib, and 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 I didn't magnesium besides food. Uh, you know before that in my life, and so something happened, and I now need all this magnesium. And I don't know what it is. So, yeah. Well, I think more people are going to be like me and your wife. That so it be just be aware of it at least because this is something as a discipline sure. that I recommend. I mean, what what's your take? I think everyone should be doing this as they not just go out you know this week and start it, but work up to it. It took me a month or so to to integrate into my schedule in life, 
but uh, it might take you six months. But it's once you figure it out, it's something you should do on a regular basis. And I, you know, maybe it isn't once a month. Maybe it's once a quarter. Maybe it's twice a year. Maybe it's every two weeks, like you. But you, you at some point, you're going to need to do it if you want to optimize your longevity and health span. Well, certainly, Doctor. I don't know. Have you interviewed Doctor Seyfried? Oh yes, twice or three times. I just had dinner with him like two weeks ago. Uh, you know, I mean, he recommends people, you know, fast for, you know, six, seven days, once a year or something like that, just as a, you know, uh, to ward off cancer. I mean, I, I know that. Yeah. So that, that, but that's not, that's a cancer prevention strategy. I'm talking about health optimization because I think the, the benefits for doing this and the five days is just extraordinary. So, uh, maybe you can just describe a little bit of the, when you bought, hacked uh, Walter Longo's pack, patent, what it was doing, the fasting mimicking diet, and then you know, the material information you got from that, which is why you started on your current program. Well, I, you know, I looked, I, you know, I was, I, I was pulling down his papers, looking at his patent. He actually has a bunch of patents, you know, because once they started looking at, at, at uh, the fasting and fasting mimicking diet, um, they, uh, they, they're applying it broadly. I mean, they're, they're applying it to autoimmune issues. Um, they're applying it to heart conditions. They're applying it to cancer. They're applying it to a whole bunch of things. And they, and they would write a patent for each one. And, uh, and additionally, the patents are so broadly written that you can, you know, you, you can say it's, it goes all the way from fasting to their fasting mimicking diet. And, and then what's in the fasting, you know, what, what is in the fasting mimicking diet which um, primarily is, is uh, the, the protein is, is exclusively vegan in their fasting mimicking diet, and it's, it's very low sugar, and it's the two nutrient sensing, it's several nutrient sensing pathways they're trying not to, uh, to trigger. Um, mm. And so they're trying to get people some food. You know, in, in his first uh, human study where they were trying to duplicate the, uh, the cancer study with the rodents, uh, and they had and they had humans that were undergoing chemotherapy. I believe it, he said it took him like five or six years to recruit eighteen patients and to do this. And that was pure fasting. Yeah, and that that was his uh, and, just that was his justification for starting the fasting mimicking diet. But but I I think yeah. that's only an artifact of the fact that he's not a native born American. He's he's Italian with a very thick accent and doesn't, you know, doesn't know the language as well and, and can't have build a that rapport and inspire and communicate effectively to get people on the fasting. So I think well, I, I don't know that I would say that. I, mean, I don't know that I'd say that. I think, you know, really? uh, there, there's a subset of people in my life that, you know, oh, fasting, oh, that's no big deal. But most everybody else you meet, they look at you, you know, if, you t if I tell them what I'm doing, they look at me like I'm crazy. And, and it's like what you described before. They think hunger, there's no way I could do that, all those kind of things. And so you try to convince people to do that. And um, uh, there's I there's ways to do it, especially with people like you and others who, who've successfully done it. And, you know, they're, they're, you can look at the neuropsychology of it and provide some compelling motivational tools, which was, wasn't done. You just you can't just sit down with them and convince them. But you need, you know, I think a little more attention to that can really inspire people to, to start it. So, you know, and I, and it depends upon what they're up against. Yeah. I mean, uh, as you know, I have a family member with uh, a glioblastoma mm -hmm. and, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the outcomes, the standard outcomes are basically, uh, 12 to 18 months after undergoing a very brutal, 
uh, chemo and radiation regime. Uh, this is what um, John McCain has. And uh, there are some uh, integrative oncologists uh, and other consultants that have uh, a better track, a significantly better track record uh, through dietary and other interventions. Mm -hmm. uh, but dietary part of it, uh, ketosis and fasting is a big part of it. And so if, you, if you're in that situation and you look at it, you know, you're, the, you know. Motivation it, is higher. Your sure. motivation is a lot higher. Yeah. Yeah. But also for your family member, I, I'm sure we discussed this by email, but, you know, you clearly want to stay away from the EMF, especially cell phones. Cell phones in the head is, is not good when you have a glioblastoma. It's not good for anyone, but it's certainly right. someone with a glioblastoma. Right. But, but anyway, so I looked, I looked at, I looked at Dr. Longo's patents and, and, uh, and I looked at a bunch of their research and it's pretty interesting. But one of the things that came out of it was that they always seem to treat their animal subjects, uh, I don't know what the right word is, more severely mm -hmm. uh, in terms of fasting. They would put them into a deeper fasted state that, you know, it was, it was uh, that then they did their human subjects. They were, they always kind of were dancing around lightweight from my perspective with their human subjects. And so, uh, well, it's a compliance issue. Compliance is the reason why hell percent compliance in animals and ones in humans is questionable. Right? No. So I understand that, but, but even for what they were prescribing for the humans was much less. And so to, to achieve the animal, my, my point is to achieve the animal results, uh, as a human, um, I, I don't know where you have to go to get there. I mean, there are people like at true North, which is a long term, they have a long term, mm -hmm. Uh, very long-term fasting clinic and stuff like that. 40 um, days, 40 days, I believe. Yeah, well, a lot of times it's variable. It depends upon okay. what, you know, what, what the person is, yeah. what the person is, what they fast them, they fast them to what they consider completion. And they, they have various definitions for that. Um, but uh, so, you know, and, and I'm wondering what, what is happening when they do that in my case. So I'll tell you what, what, what's come out of this for me uh, because, so I originally thought, well, maybe I could remodel my heart AFib, what, you know, Mm -hmm. Maybe I could get rid of the AFib. Well, obviously, you know, a month ago I had AFib again, so I haven't done that. I mean, that, that mm -hmm. hasn't happened. Uh, that's clear. Uh, but what has happened, I mean, for years and years and years, you know, long before I ever started a low-carb diet and everything, I've had, you know, bowels that were crazy. And, you know, you talk about the five and a half grams of magnesium a day. And, and if I would drop from five and a half to four and a half grams, uh, at one point, I would have very, very, very hard stools and constipation. Mm -hmm. And uh, which I couldn't figure out. And, and I, and I, and my diet's pretty high fiber and I, and I would be taking, and, and as you, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a, a Dr. Gundry patient and I would take what he would suggest and all these prebiotics and probiotics and, and, um, never could make a dent in it. Um, and I, I, what has happened is that every fasting cycle, it's gotten better. And what cycle are you in now, right now? This is cycle 13. Okay. So 13, Five-day or seven-day fast? Yeah, most of them are, all of them are, except for this one, are five days. Okay. And, and I, had done, I had done some other fasting before that, but not, not cyclically like this. But mm -hmm. the, and the first seven-day fast I did uh, about a year ago, you know, I think I noticed that it was, it was a little bit better. But now I've noticed that every time I do the fasting, it gets, and I wouldn't say that I'm by any means perfect now, but it's, it's a lot closer to normal than it's ever been. Yeah. And I'm back down at it at a gram and a half of magnesium or whatever. I'm curious in your 13 cycles, five day, uh, five day fast, uh, what is the average weight loss during each of those five day periods? Because for me, it's, I've done it twice and it's like 10 pounds. You know, it's probably eight. 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, again, it's a variable thing. It isn't always consistent, but you know, my uh, my weight would probably go from you know maybe 175 down to 168 or something like that. And again, sometimes it goes a little lower, sometimes it starts a little higher. I mean, it's, you know, sure. it varies like that. And my weight is basically, when you look at from one cycle to the next, it's basically constant. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not... Uh, um, well, that's the beauty of this pro process. You, you, you get your set point and you're right on there, almost no matter what you eat, because your body has the ability to, when you burn fat for fuel, you can easily eliminate unwanted calories through your urine and through your breath and fat. I mean, it's just, a, it's almost magic what you can do with it. So it's, it's really easy to stabilize your body weight. Right. So, so that for, for me, this has not been a weight loss process. No, no. For many people, that's precisely what they need. And there's no, there's no more powerful way to treat weight loss or to achieve weight loss and to eliminate diabetes, type two diabetes than with a fast, but with the and, cautions and that we talked about earlier. And so, uh, one of the things that, that uh, and I mentioned that, you know, in, back in March, I'd done this detailed two-week diet analysis, and um, there's a guy in Australia, Marty Kendall, who is developing a nutrient optimizer program, uh, which is interesting. And, um, pardon me? Software program? Yeah, I mean, you send him your, you do a two-week analysis, send him your chronometer data, and he goes through it, and he, and he, and he gives you uh, detailed results, and uh, it, it, it's interesting. One of the things that came out, you know, looking at, at you know, uh, governmental standards, I, I don't know what standards he uses, who's, maybe who's, WHO standards or something of, of, of nutrition. And one of the things that came out is, well, you're eating, and for what Dr. Gundry has prescribed for me, uh, a relatively low protein diet. My, my, my diet is a little bit of, of animal protein, but, but modest. And, uh, you know, and it runs around, um, you know, again, my protein ran from 70, 34 to 69 grams a day with an average of 52. And yeah. I'm, you know, so I'm at around 0.7 grams per lean. Yeah, almost, lean that's, those are my, almost, almost my numbers precisely. About, about 0.7 and about 55, 56 grams of protein. Yeah, and so, uh, and the other thing that came out, in, which again was intentional, was my calcium intake was low. I've forgotten it was probably like five, 600 milligrams a day. And, and I, through experience, found out that excess calcium actually made fib worse. And, uh, and so, I, so I intentionally don't take it. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I did a, a, a DEXA scan to see, you know, to get some objective evidence, you know, okay, how am I doing for muscle mass, you know, mm -hmm. the protein issues? How am I doing for my bone, my bone uh, mineral density? I have a T-score of zero. And for those that don't know what that means, is uh, uh, a T score, a zero means that you have the the bone mineral density, uh, the average bone mineral density of a 30 year old of your sex. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if you had a plus one, that would mean you'd have bone de density one standard deviation above. A minus one would be one standard deviation. And, and what below. is your age? What is your age now, George? I'm 62. 62. Okay. And and then on my on my body composition results, and this is for all my limbs and, and everything, I, uh, uh, my, my body fat percentage was 16.7, and then they, they, they give you, uh, they, they do it statistically how you compare with others your age. Mm -hmm. 
percentile for each limb and my torso for somebody my age. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not bodybuilder lean, but I'm pretty lean. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, just a marvelous anecdotal testimonial verified by the lab that you just did that this works. And by fasting for five days every two weeks, essentially, for the last quarter, half a year, or close yep. to it, yep. you, you've, uh, you've not lost muscle mass. You have right. not lost muscle mass, and your bone density is, is that of someone half your age. Right. Um, and so one, one, one question I'll, 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 uh, I'll throw back to you. I know that you and Dr. Longo talked about um, mm -hmm. increasing protein on the days that you work out. Yes, yes. Uh, and I believe you said like 30 grams of, uh, of protein at a meal maximum to, 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 to stimulate mm -hmm. muscle creation. And I wondered, and, and, and then uh, also some, some more carbohydrates, I just wondered how you integrated that into what you're doing. Well, I, I have two days of the week that I have a personal trainer, and I go to the gym, and he guides me through a strength training process. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like to go in that, I'd do it early in the morning. That's not the ideal, but that's when works best for my schedule. And I try to have a good sleep because if I don't have a good sleep the night before and I'm not well rested and my, my recovery index is high, low, then it's hard to do a hard workout. It really is. It's really challenging. So, but most of the times I'm able to coordinate my lifestyle so I can do that. When I do and I push it, I can push it. And I know I've really exhausted myself. Then I'll have uh, just what you described, an extra typically 20, 30 grams of protein and lots of good carbs. Typically two sweet potatoes loaded with butter, extra salt and uh, this is raw pastured butter, uh, organic, that and uh, some cinnamon on it. And that's, that's my treat. And I love it. And I'll have some mulberries because I've, I've harvested about 20 gallons of mulberries from the shrubs that are in my backyard. So I got plenty of mulberries in my freezer. And uh, I enjoy that. Uh, and it's, I, you know, because you, you, you want to create this anabolic stimulus. It's a switch. It's like a light switch. You could turn on the switch. Uh, with the with the weight training, but if there's no electricity in there, which would be the the nutrients, you know, you're not going to get the results which you want, which is the increase in muscle mass. At least that's what I'm thinking. I, and I've, you know, I don't have an objective parameter to measure. I haven't certainly haven't done a DEXA scan and uh, uh, ultrasound measurements that I do use a little personal meter to measure. But I haven't actually haven't done that for a while either. But I should start. But, uh, you know, it, just from appearance, it appears to be going in the right direction. At least I'm getting positive feedback from people. Yeah, I can, I can see. I mean, so back in June, uh, and I don't check all my metrics all the time, all my blood sugar, all my, you know, all my, sure. all my. Uh, uh, after, ten, after 15 years, it's not necessary. <laughs> right, you know, but. Or, no, no, it was it's not. Eight, eight, eight years. Yeah. You know, I, I, I checked my blood sugar in the afternoon, and it was. 31 and, uh, <laughs> and well, you weren't a fat you weren't a fast though. there's no way it was 31 when you're eating food it was 31 yeah this is the fifth day of a fast and my and fast. my okay. and my ketones were uh my serum ketones were at six and so i thought to myself well what do you do and so i went to the gym and um uh, uh uh and and you're familiar with the super slow to failure workouts i'm sure yeah, absolutely yeah and and so I and I hadn't done one in about a month, and I hadn't done a fast. So I went on a fasted day, 
and I managed to increase my time under load by an average of 84%. <laughs> exactly what the, the experts would say is not possible. And, and so then I started doing that workout mm -hmm. every when I was in town, every fifth day, I'd go to the gym and do that workout. And I have not, not that dramatically at all, but I've managed to incrementally increase my time under load or load marginally every time on the fifth day of a fast, which I thought was, was interesting because I don't have any fuel on that day. Yeah. And, um, there's no, and, uh, glycogen stores are minimal to non-existent. Yeah. And, and, uh, well, just say that. Yeah, your liver's making you know, your liver's I, making. I've been some. doing this stuff for your liver's making some. Yeah, your liver's and so I so I, so one of my friends uh, is a is a doc in in Hawaii and he's done he's done he he coaches um, uh, natural strength natural bodybuilders mm -hmm. and and I told him what I was doing and he was really all over me saying oh you know you you know you could have a you know a ventricular heart arrhythmia you know and you could go into <laughs> all this stuff and I'm like you know. And, he, and then another friend of mine who's a neurologist said, you know, the only people I've seen with a 31 blood sugar are, are comatose. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 but I told my friend who was, who's in the, the bodybuilding world and, and stuff. And I said, you know, you're not seeing people who are well adapted. And I said, if my, and especially because my blood sugar wasn't there because I had some kind of exogenous influence like insulin driving mm -hmm. it down. Yeah. If you, my body you, wants glucose, it'll make it. Right. And, 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 I, and I've never had a hypoglycemic episode in my mm -hmm. life. And mm -hmm. all the fasting I do and everything, I don't, have a hypo, I don't have hypoglycemic episodes. And what he was describing was shock due to a hypoglycemic ex episode, which right. can cause right. ventricular arrhythm arrhythmias. Mm -hmm. But that's not what I experience. And uh, so well, it's really anyone who's keto adapted. Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Completely agree with that. Uh, so, yeah, and 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 my workout isn't maybe as structured as you. I, uh, about twelve years ago, at the beginning of, uh, you're familiar probably with TRX, uh, the straps, the uh, body weight straps. Oh yeah, yeah, I've got a, I've got a pit in my home gym. Yes. Yeah, and and so I was in a I was in a uh, in a hotel in Canada, and in their exercise room they had one, and so they had a set of straps, and so uh, that's interesting. And so I came home and I bought. Their, their pair that had a military fitness workout. Mm -hmm. And so I've done that consistently. And, uh, and then they updated their workout and have an app. And I do that stuff. And, and, and that's a fairly intense workout. Yeah. I, um, I remember um, about 14 years ago, um, I broke the radius in my arm on a bicycle accident. And that arm has never been quite as strong is the other one, and so I was I was I was backpacking with a friend of mine who's a hand surgeon, and I was telling him this, and I and I said, you know, Tom, I said, it's been years, and I still can't, you know, I'm doing a suspended plank. I have my feet in the straps. I'm mm -hmm. up on one arm, and I'm, you know, and then the other arm is is, and I'm doing rotations, mm -hmm. and and Tom looked at me and he said, well, George, he said, most people your age don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's key. Well, this is good. Uh, uh, we're running out of time now, so we probably should close it up. But I just want to mention that you yet again inspired me so to be a bit more objective in my data collection. So uh, I was just speaking at Bulletproof, and I had a chance to connect with Dave Asprey, and he uh -huh. turned me, he clued me into this new company that's going to release a new a unit, an isokinetic unit that is uh, really intriguing. 
and uh, I'm probably going to pick up in the spring that essentially allow it's like super slow on steroids. Instead of weights, you're using a motor, a direct control motor, finely tuned. That okay. you can do all these exercises, you can, and, it, and it has a very large screen, so you can objectify it and, and record the data. So I'll be doing a super slow workout, probably maybe once a week or so, and then I can see, you know, because I really want to play with this, and maybe we'll have you on here in a year again, because you, you, I just love your approach. I mean, it's so uncommon to meet an individual like you who's just, you know. A, a renegade and you know disagrees with the conventional medical community but you're you're a real inspiration to the to most of our audience are not medical professionals or health professionals like you and you know just to show you if you have intelligence and persistence you can read the literature you don't have to bow down to these guys and you can do it yourself and do it safely uh, and, and actually get much healthier and solve the problem at its foundational core. And hopefully you'll consider integrating fasting in what you're doing because as I said when I opened up this, this interview, there is no more profound metabolic intervention that I know of and I suspect you'd agree with that. I do, I do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, we're not, we are trying to sell you something but there's no cost, you're gonna get, save money. You know, there's, there's nothing to buy, there's just, Food, uh, food I, mean, I would think that if, if the population would just do, you know, even like a five-two fast or whatever, you know, where mm -hmm. you're where you're fasting two days a week or something, you know, as a general rule, if people did that, it would probably change the the uh, the health trajectory of the nation dramatically. Yeah, we, it's currently three trillion dollars is what we spend on healthcare. I, I'm pretty confident we can cut that in half and maybe more, maybe even seventy-five percent. Uh, but assuming that it was done consistently, we had almost uni universal compliance, uh, which was, of course, not going to happen. And I mean, right. people know smoking is not good for them. We still have 25% of the population smoking. We've, we've got a lot of problems, but we could substantially reduce it, no question. So, yep. George, congratulations to you and all you've done. And thank you again for your personal inspiration to me to start this this journey. You know, you it was really my discussion with you that started it. So you're responsible. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck in your continuation. All right. Absolutely. Very good. You keep up the good work, too.